to episode 216 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and my guest on the podcast is Jean Hanf Korlitz, whose seventh novel for adults, The Plot, which made its way onto the must-read lists of everyone from the New York Times and Entertainment Weekly to Oprah to crime fiction's own inside baseball-esque crime reads, was recently published by Celadon Press. Thank you for taking the time to join the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. So much to talk about. Uh, I'm not alone in this observation by any means, but I have to ask, have you somehow cracked the code to actually record the thoughts and emotions of novelists? Like some sort of real-time VRCT scan, like how Jacob Finch Bonner's emotions, imposter syndrome is just one, are delineated they're so spot on in the book. It's kind of creepy, but in a good way. Well, I mean, I am a writer. This is how we think, or at least how I think. And, and, and I have many writer friends, some of whom I'm more honest with than others, but certainly, you know, fear, terror, self-loathing, you know, uh, paranoia. It's, it's all part of the package, along with not having to wear pantyhose to go to work. I mean, there are great things about being a writer, especially, you know, when they come to how you need to dress and uh, what hours you have to work uh, and whether you have to work. But, you know, your, your, your worst critics just live rent-free in your head. So, you know, that's not so fun. No, but you, you managed to, it's one thing to live with those demons in your head. And it's another to explain them in such a way that it's not precious or uh, somehow really obnoxious. And, and you do it. I mean, Jake is very, very real to writers, certainly, but also to people who are not writers. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I have never written a, a protagonist who, whom I haven't wanted to smack at some point. And Jake is no exception. He's, he's not a he's not really the kind of guy you'd want to go out and have a beer with. I mean, he's a very interesting guy and he's hardworking. I mean, there are some great things about him, but he's very wrapped up in himself and his issues and his, you know, all the things we were just talking about, paranoia and um, imposter syndrome and all that stuff. But, you know, he, he, he's, a, he's a complicated guy, but he's all of us. I mean, no matter where we are in our careers, even if we're in a good place, I'm in a good place right now. I'm probably in the best place I've ever been. My brain is full of you know, horrible things are about to happen and it's all going to go away and somebody will pop out of the internet with his finger pointed, his or her finger pointed at me and the word jacuzzi on his lip. I said the word as if that's one word. Perhaps in French it is one word. Um, you know, we're all kind of one little half skip away from from a very, very bad place. Just ask James Fry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about a little bit about the plot. Uh, when the story opens, although young, uh, Jake is a bit of a has-been. Yeah. He's a one-book wonder. Yep. Many of us uh, You know, he's less than that. And it's interesting that many of the reviews have characterized his career path as dying to get back to the fame and fortune of his first novel. His first novel creates a tiny little blip on the radar and then it's gone. I mean, he gets one sort of nice note. In, he's a new and noteworthy in the New York Times and that's it. 
and uh, he never really experiences any kind of success. And then he's completely incapable of following up even, you know, the, the, that blip that he had with his first book. So um, he, he, he's really aging out of being a young and exciting novelist, and he's got nothing. And, you know, one of the nice things about Jake, one of the few things that I really do admire about him is that he doesn't blame anybody else. He doesn't say, oh, they're all against me and publishing doesn't want to hear from a, a white guy from Long Island. He doesn't complain about the world. He acknowledges that whatever has happened or not happened, it is on him. In the plot, yeah. uh, Jacob Bonner and this is where you get into some nomenclature. He uses, he appropriates, he steals the kernel of an idea for a novel that he hears from one of the students he's teaching at what could generously be called an also-ran writer's retreat in New England. And two years after hearing the idea, Jake finds out the student who told him had died and the novel was never written. So Jake uses the idea. And this is sticky stuff. Early in the story, Jake ruminates that there are but a few essential plots. There's the quest, the voyage, the, the voyage in return, coming of age, overcoming the monster. So what Jake does isn't plagiarism. We should be really clear about that. Yeah, yeah. But who owns a story? Well, isn't that the question? <laughs> that is the question. I mean, in, in, again, it's very hard to talk about this book without giving anything away, but what Jake uh, fails to reckon with in his eagerness to engage with the story. And, and as you pointed out, he writes an entire novel based on the story. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't copy a word. And he's only even just seen a couple of pages that the, the student had turned in as a writing exercise. He doesn't, there's nothing to copy from. What Jake doesn't realize when he uh, appropriates the story by his student, and, and I say appropriate with hand quotes because he does not copy a single word and he only ever saw a couple of pages in a, uh, an excerpt that the student turned in is the possibility that the student himself has appropriated the story. Um, his kind of myopia as far as the story concerns goes no farther than his student himself. So what he discovers to his uh, detriment, you might say, is that, you know, the, uh, the great idea did not originate with his student. And that's where his problem is, because there's somebody out there who knows what he did and who's very, very, very unhappy about it. And of course, that's the crux of the story. And that's kind of where we have to stop talking about it. Because kind of. It's so annoying. <laughs> but, but it's an interesting conundrum, because yeah. that's, that's what opens up, I think, aside from Jake's sort of self-involved imposter syndrome uh, issues is this idea of who owns a story. And I don't think there's a novelist, certainly not a crime fiction novelist that hasn't taken the germ of a story from a newspaper article at the you know, it's, I never thought of that before. I never thought of that before. Yeah. Well, welcome, welcome to the paranoia of all writers. Oh, I, I have plenty of paranoia for months. But, you know, the, the, you really put your finger on it because, I mean, we're all afraid to be stolen from. Nobody wants to be stolen from. Even though intellectually we understand that we're all taking from a common thing. And, and, and just as an aside, I was once sitting in the 
in a movie theater. This was many years ago, watching a movie with uh, Julia Roberts and Mel Gibson and getting more and more irate as I watched it because it was so like my first novel, which when I later checked had been submitted to the studio. But then I realized, I thought about all the things that I had taken when I wrote that novel that had come from other places. And I, I paused, you know, before I, phone my lawyer, you know, I, 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 I backed off because I realized that, um, you know, if one person had invented a body is found and a detective tries to discover who did it, there are going to be a lot of, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of appropriated novels out there. That would be what 95% of the mystery genre would have to disappear, would have to go into the bad books pile. But the other side of what we fear is that we ourselves are, are, are stealing without our knowledge. That, you know, when we pull out this idea or this plot or these characters or, um, or sentences, even sentences, that somewhere inside our heads, that sentence was already written, that idea already existed, we read it somewhere. And in all of the books that we've read over all the years, it's in there jumbling around with everything else. And we don't always remember where it came from. So, you know, there's that fear of, you know, the accuser is, is there for all of us. And I, I mean, when you look at the list of unbelievable writers, great writers who've been accused of plagiarism, um, it, it's, it's quite terrifying. A lot of things came to mind while I was reading the plot and the adage of be careful what you wish for. And the Robert Burns quote, oh, would some power the gift give us to see ourselves as others see us? I, like I said, it goes back to my first question. It, your examination of, of Jake is so, it's, such, it's like a dissection. It's so accurate. <laughs> well, you have to remember that I never expect when I write a book that anybody's going to read it. So I, I feel a, a certain freedom to, uh, you know, indulge my, my deepest, you know, wishes for myself. And I mean, I basically gave Jake's, Jake's dream of success as a writer had all the little earmarks of mine. I mean, everything from the cover of Poets and Writers, which, you know, has nothing to do with making money. It has to do with prestige in our chosen field to, you know, a quote, A-list uh, director, which in this case is Steven Spielberg. Um, and, and I can do that because I control everything in this world that I'm making. My friend, um, Min Jin Lee, I was once at a, at a talk, uh, that she was doing for, for my, I have a little company called Book the Writer that does uh, meetings with authors. And somebody said to her, well, you know, you have this character, this was in her first novel, Free Food for Millionaires, this was before Pachenko. Um, you have this character who's like a queen's housewife and she works in a, in a cleaners and you've given her the, the greatest operatic voice on the planet. Don't you think that's a little unlikely? And Min sort of, you know, she squared her shoulders and, and she said, this is my world. I mean, I, can, I, you know, I control everybody, I control everything, and I wanted to give her the voice of Kiri Takanawa, and I can. So I did. So, you know, when it came time for me to make Jake successful, and he does become extremely successful, I just sort of hurled at him all of the little earmarks um, that I had, you know, spent six novels hoping would happen for me, and which had not. Um, I mean, with, with, 
one big exception, which was what happened last fall on HBO. Um, but that happened after I wrote the book. So, you know, it was very fulfilling to, uh, to see him achieve my dreams, really. But of course, I certainly am not hoping for the rest of what he got with his fame. So, like... Like someone, I, I did read about the organization that you do, so you've anticipated so many of my questions. Oh dear, sorry about that. No, 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 that's that. That's amazing. So, uh, but Jake appropriates Evan's idea uh, and turns it into, as you mentioned, a mind-blowing bestseller, a Dan Brown-level bestseller. Coffees with A-list directors, selling out twenty-four hundred seat theaters, and yet. When he starts to receive emails accusing him of stealing the story from an email that gives a nod to Patricia Highsmith's iconic character, Tom Ripley, he goes in search of the facts of the case. So Jake finally has everything he wanted, a bestseller, a movie deal, a place in the West Village, a wife that he loves. Why does he do that? What compels him to go looking? And that, of course, makes it a mystery. Yeah, I, sh I should point out that he doesn't immediately snap into Lord Peter Whimsey mode. He's he's so traumatized at first that he literally unplugs his phone and, you know, um, and disappears with a bottle of Jameson's for a week. Um, he is so traumatized and so terrified and he's hoping it will go away. He really is. And of course, it's not going away. Um, when he eventually kind of realizes that he is in a position where he cannot, you know, he cannot ask for help because he cannot share the, the, the radioactive truth that he did not come up with the story of his bestseller himself. He uh, realizes that he knows nothing about his former student, his late student. He doesn't know where he's from. He doesn't know who was in his family. He only knows that he's dead <laughs> because he's read the obituary and he's read, you know, a few online testimonials from some people. But he also knows that uh, whatever However, this person, this person who calls himself Talented Tom, um, has come across has come across this secret. It must have something to do with Ripley, which is the MFA program where uh, professor and student met. So he focuses on Ripley um, and tries to, you know, winnow that information into some sort of some sort of way forward but it doesn't, doesn't work the way he thinks it will. Life rarely does. Yeah. So you, you've written novels. You are, as you mentioned, you're a theater family, you're a playwright, and you are a poet. And I've asked Sophie Hanna the same question. Um, I'm always intrigued by the intersection of poetry and crime fiction writing. Is so, there one? I didn't know there was one. Yeah, there's a few. Sophie Hanna is the one that comes to mind, but there have been other poets. There have been other, and I'm, you know, everybody jots down lines that they hope that rhyme, but Sophie is uh, a published poet. Um, did you find that, you know, to me, uh, because poetry and crime fiction writing are like puzzles. There, you can, you know, you have to construct them to tell the story. So, did you find that one form informed the other or am I just like over totally well, that, over? That hadn't occurred to me. Um, first of all, I'm an ex-poet. I'm not an active poet. My last, the last poem I ever wrote, I think was in 19, 
89. So I, I, I only wrote poetry uh, through my early 20s, and I did have one book published. Um, and I think since that book came out in 1988, I wrote one poem. <laughs> so, so I really left it behind. However, I've always been aware of and grateful for um, the impact of poetry on my prose writing. And I'm not dividing prose writing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not equating, sorry, prose writing with mystery writing. I write prose and it is, I write prose fiction and it is for the rest of the world to tell me what shelf in the bookstore that book belongs on. And as you know, I have been all over the place and uh, it, it has been a burden. It's been a big pain in the butt, frankly. Um, it's been, uh, uh, I think, a big part of the reason that um, my books have not really caught on until recently, because I, I would kind of get a bunch of readers for a novel and then they would read the next one and think, no, I'm not here for this. And they would just, we're out, we're out of here. I, I mean, that, that's been a bit of a problem, but my job is to write the novel as well as I can. And I, I do love plot. I'm interested in plot, obviously. I wrote a whole book called The Plot, but you know, to me, it's not, I don't start with, I'm gonna write a thriller and it's gonna be on this, shelf in the bookstore. That is for other people to decide. Well, I think the idea of genre, I've, I've talked to a couple of writers about this uh, who have written what are called cross-genre novels. And the one person that comes to mind is Nick Harkaway, who's, you know, he wrote a couple of novels and, and the last one was called Tiger Man. And and his name, his real name is Nick Cromwell, which he says, I don't want to be on the shelf next to Patricia nobody's going to look at my, you know, nobody's going to look at my book, but you know, he, he, and I've also asked Val McDermott the same question. It's, it's a sort of a, you know, it's a place to put the book, like you said, on the shelf. And I don't, I adore crime fiction, but I move outside the line. Sometimes a good book's a good book. A bad book is a bad book. So. And frankly, I mean, if you if you're looking at the idea of plot rather than you know crime fiction, mystery, thriller, whatever, I mean, a great a great literary novel is very likely to have a great plot. And I have heard the plot of Pride and Prejudice described as suspenseful. I, I remember vividly remember uh, an interview with the producer of the famous 1990s adaptation, the one with the, uh, Colin Firth. Um, saying that she had read the novel 19 times and every time she read it, she was in suspense as to whether, you know, Elizabeth and Darcy were going to figure it out. And, you know, that is an incredible compliment to Jane Austen that she was able to infuse her story with that much tension and suspense you know, after 19 readings. I happen to agree. It, it would probably make some of your podcast listeners, you know, run screaming in horror that I have you know, I've brought Jane Austen into this, but, you know, I think a great plot is a great plot. Great writing is great writing. And there's suspense in, uh, frequently people bring up the Russian writers and say all of all, you know, War and Peace and Anna Karenina, they're all mysteries. They're all, they all have crime and certainly Dostoevsky crime and punishment. They're all, you know, they're all crime novels. Crime yeah, I tend to go back to Oedipus Rex myself. 
Oedipus Rex is, you know, the, the ultimate uh, uh, detective story. Who did it? I did it. You know, to, to me, that's that's what all great suspense fiction boils down to. Who did it? I did it. And sometimes why? Well, why is helpful. But I mean, I am the arrogant solver of mysteries. I am here to tell all yous what's up. I'm going to figure it out. You people weren't able to do it. Oops, it's me all along. You know, maybe I didn't know about it. Maybe I killed that guy at the crossroad because he gave me the finger up from his chariot, you know? So I said, I'm, I'm taking you out. Little did I know that guy turned out to be my father. I am guilty. You know, that's like the greatest story ever told. So are you working on another, I would expect that you're working on another book. I am, I am. I'm, I, I'm actually working on the book I was writing when I got the idea for the plot. Um, I, I was two or three drafts into this book and it just wasn't working. And my editor was explaining to me why it wasn't working and why I had to rewrite it again. Um, and I, I just kind of dumped this whole story on her of, about this writer who steals another writer's idea and doesn't realize that it, the story itself was stolen from somewhere else. And, that I told her what the plot was and her jaw just fell open. It was very gratifying. And we decided together that I would write this other book and that, you know, I'd take some time away from the book that wasn't working um, and then come back to that afterwards. And that is what I've done. I'm right in the middle of the revision now. It's due next month and it will be published in April. But I don't think anybody could call this book a mystery. Um, you know, it, it's a very satisfying plot. I'm very happy with how things resolve and come together, but it is, you know, there's no crime. There's no solver of the crime. Well, unless you really extend the metaphor pretty, pretty far. Well, I think it's still something to look forward to. So thank next you. April. Um, thank you, Jean, for talking to us and spending time with the, with the podcast. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate talking to you. It was an amazing, read and a great book so uh, thank you so much 